2: to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark.
3: Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations, with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about unbelievable events, motel monstrosities, And outdoor anomalies. I'm Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast, now in its third season. Available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts can be found. If you can't get enough of the macabre, look me up too and subscribe for even more horror than you can handle each and every week. Tonight, I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my friend Steve Taylor, and I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly-lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Ryan Harville, Bryce Simmons, and Jay King to life are voice talents Drew Blood, Steve Gray, and Mick Dark. Now... Get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, embrace yourself, it's time to turn off the lights, then turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Ryan Harville and is performed by Drew Blood. In our first round of frightening fiction tonight, a gentleman witnesses something otherworldly, the sort of thing that no one would believe even if you told them. But what if they don't have to believe him? Because it was captured on film. Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado... I present to you, The Hole in the Sky.
4: To whomever may be listening, welcome to the end of the world. That's fucked up, huh? Hundreds of thousands of years of building up to this It's beyond surreal. And to be honest, I don't think I've processed it. Processed it? (laughs) That's funny. Like anyone can deal with this. Maybe the Bible thumpers, but I don't think so. Can you imagine? Spent their entire lives waiting to be beamed up above, to leave before all the shit hit the fan. No, I don't think anybody is coping well at all. I don't know exactly when the riots started, but it wasn't too long after the first incident. Once the footage went viral of the sky opening, everything went to shit pretty quickly. Buildings cracked like eggs, spilling their contents into the open air, where some unimaginable current pulled everything into. A void? A hole? I don't have a clue, and neither does anyone else. Except maybe the poor souls who got to see it with their own eyes as they rose up into the sky. I guess we'll all know soon enough. So Leslie, my wife, took the kids over to her brother's place. He's one of those survival nuts with an underground bunker filled with equal parts food and ammunition. We argued for days about it. Especially once some scientist guys and gals knelt down to the date of the last day. The formula or algorithm or whatever they used went way over my head, but I caught the gist of it. The number of appearances, the rate at which they spread and widen, with the chance of some other stuff. Long story short, they determined today was the day. Today is the day. I begged her not to go, to spend what time we had left together at home in the place we'd built, but she was adamant, stubborn as always, insisting that it was the only way that it would be safe underground. Didn't matter that we had all seen the footage of subway cars ripped right from their tunnels, or that the government's bunkers were now nothing but gravel. In the end, I gave up. Our arguing was just scaring the kids more than they already were without our help. I hugged their boys tight, and I told them how much I loved them, how everything was going to be okay, then I closed the door. Sorry, I, I just can't help it, you know? Seems I've cried more in the past 24 hours than I have in 20 years. They were my whole life, and I just let them go. I didn't tell them the whole truth. I didn't tell them that if they did somehow, by some miracle survive, that I didn't want to be there. The truth is, if they make it through, I don't want to be a further drain on their resources. I won't take food out of my kids' mouths. Never. But that's not going to happen anyway. Let me just be clear about that. There's no last minute miracle coming. Entire countries are gone. A hole opens above and gets wider and wider, while everything down to the topsoil goes up in a swirling column of near-black clouds. Before I left the house, I heard Australia was finally skinned, and Greenland is gone too, like a lathe just shaving everything off the surface of the earth, leaving nothing but dirt and rock. As to why, who knows or cares at this point? Alien terraforming, lizard people, vast government conspiracies, God's righteous judgment, Bill Gates, Democrats. I've heard it all in the last few weeks, and it all doesn't matter. And even if we knew, what difference would it make? I'm still going to die today, along with everyone else. Damn, I've run out of beer. I've been steadily drinking since Leslie left. Why not? I've never been much for it, but today, of all days, it's pretty nice. My nerves are calm, at least. The clouds are getting thicker by the minute. No real sunlight to speak of, but it's alright. I'm not sure if I'm fuzzy-headed from the drinking or from watching the clouds move. They're kind of hypnotic, I guess. They curl around each other, intertwine like strings, and then tear apart then meet again, only to start to dance over. It would be a beautiful thing under different circumstances. Christ, I've never heard a thunderclap like that. I felt it in my bones, felt my heart rattle in my chest. I'm surprised there's not a mushroom cloud on the horizon. That's how I always imagined the end, you know. My father used to tell me stories about drills they had to perform in school when he was growing up. The siren would go off, the sound sawing through the afternoon air. Then they'd have to crawl under their desks and put their little hands over their heads and wait for the end. And now my sons do something similar, preparing for the chance that some asshole with an AR-15 kicks in their classroom door. I get it now. I don't think I ever got it then, but yeah, I get it now. I'm not crawling underneath a desk, though. I'm just going to sit right here on my front porch and watch the sky open for me. No running. No hiding. It is what it is. I… I can see shapes leaving the ground in the distance. Malformed shadows rising in the air and up into whatever lies beyond the opening. Could be trees, might be houses. Our nearest neighbors live out that way, Jan and Harold. They came over to the house often to chat and see the boys. They never could have kids of their own, so I guess they liked being around mine. They didn't know how lucky they were. Uh, I know that sounds awful, and I feel awful saying it, but they didn't have to explain this impossible situation to a child didn't have to tell them that they, that they wouldn't. I I don't think I can do this. I, I thought I was strong enough to watch it creep towards me, but I can't. It's like watching the world's slowest bullet coming at you in a long, doorless hall. There's no room to dive out of the way, no doors to duck behind. I can see people going up now. The flailing limbs are easy to make out. I don't know if I'm imagining their screams or if I'm actually hearing them. I've changed my mind, I think. I'm, I'm glad they didn't stay. At least they won't see it coming. The edges are getting clearer. Not clean cut like it was carved into the sky. Nothing as obvious as that, but... There's definition there. A boundary between worlds. I don't know if worlds is right, but it leads somewhere else. Some unimaginable place. Maybe even into the vacuum of space. Nobody knows. Screaming, yes. The screaming is closer. Can you hear it? The sound warps in the wind back and forth like waves. Sounds closer than it is. I brought out my pistol with me. I just feel safer with it here. It won't stop what's coming, of course, but it will stop me. I just want to see inside before I go. See if there's something in there. And if I can't stick it out, well... I have another option. It was my father's pistol. He's long dead now, and I'm glad he didn't live to see this. Glad I don't have to see the smug satisfaction on his face. He already had a crazy streak in him, and this just would have made it so much worse. He went slow, Alzheimer's and dementia. I don't know if it was growing up with the threat of nuclear annihilation or what, but he was always preoccupied with the end of times. It just got worse as he got worse, ranting and raving about the apocalypse until the nurses would have to sedate him. One time, he made me hide in a closet for most of a day to keep me safe from some terrible end. When mom got home. She was more pissed off than I'd ever seen her before. For the rest of that summer, I stayed with my aunt while mom was at work. Dad wasn't working by that point, just drawing disability checks from the government. He used to work, had multiple jobs in fact, but he'd always lose them in the end. As soon as one of his bad days would happen, he'd be let go. He could never keep the crazy to himself like he always felt the need to spread it around. Yeah, it's getting colder out here. Ambient temperature drops as the hole approaches. Common knowledge by this point. Like when you open your front door in winter and all the heat rushes out of the room. Exactly like that, actually. The clouds are almost to the ground now. I can imagine them tearing into the earth like fingers, pulling up handfuls to be drawn up into the absence there. Anyway, sorry I got caught up in the moment. What was I saying? Oh yeah, Dad. (laughs) He bust into my room one morning when the sun was just a glint on the horizon, maybe an hour after my mom had left for the day. He said I had to get somewhere safe. I think I nodded to him, still all bleary-eyed and mostly asleep. He scooped me up and carried me down the hall. When we got to the linen closet, he quickly opened it and sat me within. I don't remember much about the early hours, but I, I do remember pulling the folded sheet down from the shelf, wrapping myself up, and falling back to sleep. When I woke again, light was shining underneath the door. I banged on the wood with my fists and screamed until I was hoarse and my throat was raw but dad never showed up. I was locked up for hours, my stomach growling loud enough to echo in the closet. I pissed in the corner like an untrained puppy. When my mom came home she found my dad standing in the front yard, pistol in one hand and beer in the other, staring up at the sky. My dad spent the next five years or so instilling the dread of the apocalypse into me. He'd watch these televangelists on TV, then give me a lesson on everything they had said when the show ended. He even sent money to those con artists. Some days we'd be wondering if we could pay the rent, but we didn't have to worry about some asshole preacher having the money to fill his private jet now, did we? Speculation about the identity of the Antichrist was a favorite of his. The carousel included Mikhail Gorbachev, Ronald Reagan, and eventually Saddam Hussein. I lived with the fear that any day the tribulation would begin, and I'd be forced to make the decision to either accept the mark of the beast or die of starvation. The mark was always different too. Barcode tattoos, credit cards. RFI tags implanted in your skin, vaccines. I'm glad I'm an only child, so no one else had to deal with Dad's lunacy. The day of my wedding, my mom pulled me aside to tell me that Leslie and I would never work because we were both only children. She said we would be too stubborn to stay together. It's crazy what you think about at the end. What was that? It sounds like knocking, pounding. Maybe trees bouncing off of each other on the way up? I can't tell from here. All the debris just looks like shadows shooting into the sky. Maybe Dad was right. Maybe this is biblical and it just doesn't look the way everyone expected it to look. No heavenly light piercing through the clouds or people just disappearing or whatever else Hollywood has come up with. Maybe it's just a celestial vacuum cleaner sucking up everything into the sky. Don't know why we'd need all this crap up in heaven, but who am I to question the divine plan? The sky is… I don't know how to describe it. What color to name it? Gray just isn't enough, and silver would probably make you think that it's shiny when it isn't. It's like the dull gunmetal color of dad's pistol. The clouds are gyring around the nearest hole, moving much slower than you'd think. Everything is slow. Has been slow for months. Time's different when you have all the time in the world. I was laid off nine months ago. That isn't entirely true, I guess. I was fired, ashamed as I am to admit it. I had just found out about the holes opening in the sky and I tried to tell people, but they just wouldn't listen. My boss overheard me, and we got into it, and I took a swing at him. Not my proudest moment, but the son of a bitch just wouldn't listen. Guess I got the last laugh, though, huh? But I don't feel like laughing. Dad's probably laughing wherever he is.
5: Is this funny, old man? You got what you wanted? everything is going to shit and god's calling us all home and what is that goddamn banging sound (laughs) oh oh, shit man (laughs) ah it's actually pretty funny here i am laughing and raving just like the bastard Here it comes. Like it's stretching to meet me. The clouds are splitting in a jagged line and coming this way. Like the hole just got too wide and just split. Jesus, listen to that wind howl. Like a goddamn freight train. I thought I was ready. I really did, but I'm scared. I don't think I want to see what's in there anymore. I could end it here. Just do it and get it over with. It'd be so easy. But what if I'm wrong? I'm not saying it's heaven up there, but it might be something. It could be a paradise. A fresh start for the human race. Goddamn Oz, for fuck's sake. Just anything but here. I'm not going to look. I'll let it take me, but I'm not looking. But I have to look. It's... It doesn't make any sense. There's no light coming, but there's reflections and things, and dear Christ, what are they? They're voices. Voices like squeaking hinges. What is... Leslie? What are you doing? Take the boys back? Back where? No! Don't look at it! What? At the hole! Don't look at it! Get them away from here! I swear to God I'll shoot! I'd rather put you all down easy than to have you see what's happening. Don't you get it? Don't you fucking get it? I'll do it. Please don't make me. No! There, it's done.
4: Now they won't see. They never have to
5: see. They're safe now. <gasps> Jesus Christ. Where, where? Where did it go?
0: You can live out your Master Chef dreams
3: as written by Ryan Harville and performed by Drew Blood. If you enjoyed that last tale, I encourage all of you to visit Mr. Harville's official website, ryanharvillewriting.com. Harville is spelled H-A-R-V-I-L-L-E. Again, that's ryanharvillewriting.com. You can also find his works on Amazon.com or connect with him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, you can hear more of Drew Blood via his series of the same name, exclusively on our official YouTube channel, where you'll hear haunting new tales every month. If you check him out, be sure to give him a thumbs up and leave a kind word, and tell him you heard him here on this program, and that Jason sent you... It would mean a lot to me. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Bryce Simmons and performed by Steve Gray. In our second occult opus, we'll meet a group of friends road-tripping through the Midwest who decide to spend the night at a motel and soon discover they are being monitored by someone. Or something with plans of its own. Now, without further ado, I present to you... Tale of the Roof Reacher.
6: They say that if you look into this pond, the dead who lie beneath its surface will stare into your soul and see the secrets you've kept hidden. They. Also used to say that if you touch yourself, you'll grow hair on your palms. Well, do you see any hair? Marcus shoved his open palm into Claire's face, smearing his hairless, though sweaty, hand across it. She pushed him away, then kneed him in the groin. He went down, soaking his pants in the pond. Everyone laughed except Marcus, of course. Derek helped him up while I stood by and stared into the pond that had, according to the crooked post nearby, once been a fairly large lake. Its surface rippled from the occasional landing of a bug upon a floating leaf or the near-surface activity of a fish, otherwise it was placid, undisturbed, and clean despite its proximity to the road just behind us. We had only stopped there to take a break from our road trip. Once everyone had stretched their legs and relieved themselves, the latter of which Marcus seemed to have had difficulty after Claire's retaliation, we loaded ourselves and our things back into Derek's car. We drove for a few more hours with Claire and Marcus bickering the entire time while Derek talked to me without pause, as if oblivious to the arguments behind us. We were all friends, but Claire and Marcus could only handle so much of each other before things soured. We slowly passed through the Midwest, stopping at diners, bars, and grills, and steakhouses along the way. When considering our budget for the trip, gas had been the second most important consideration. The first had been the food fund, and its use had been limited to the items that were grease-covered, flame-grilled, or served by portly women who called you sugar, honey, darling, or sweetheart. It was the one thing Claire and Marcus had agreed upon— Everyone was required to gain a few pounds on the trip. A few hours after departing from the pond that had been a lake, we stopped again, this time at a motel where we could rest for the night. I was especially tired having driven the entirety of the trip up to that point. It would be Claire's turn in the morning, for which I was thankful because it meant she wouldn't be immediately next to Marcus. Derek, self-designated driver, would remain in the front seat. As I pulled into the parking lot, I tried to think of something I could offer Marcus in exchange for allowing me to rest my legs across his lap during the next day's drive. The clerk at the front desk of the motel seemed young, younger than us even, but he spoke with an air of authority befitting someone much older. His demeanor was also grave, as if he suspected that we were up to no good entirely based upon our age. We'd been polite with him and hadn't come in howling or messing around, as you'd expect a group of early 20 somethings to do at 2 a.m. While we were set on expanding our bellies, we had sworn off alcohol, since everyone had to take a turn driving at some point. The young man retrieved our room keys almost begrudgingly from their hooks and passed them to us as if offering his very last dollar. Despite his unwelcoming manner, we wished him a pleasant night and headed to our assigned rooms. Claire and I were in one, with two beds, while Marcus and Derek were in another, with one bed. The arrangement was agreed upon and established by Claire and I. Before they could speak up, the clerk had said he couldn't spare two two-bedroom rooms and we hadn't bothered protesting otherwise. After all, It was a roadside motel, not a luxury hotel where a little monetary pressure could magically induce room availability. We unpacked only what we needed. Claire and I hauled out a PS4 and Derek's monitor and spent the night relaxing in our separate rooms. We had a call on speaker, going for both rooms, to casually communicate whenever it was needed, since shouting through the thin walls would have probably brought down the ire of the clerk upon us. Claire and I played Resident Evil 5, one of the few games on the console that had split screen co-op. Derek watched Event Horizon on his laptop, a movie he'd seen probably 12 times before, while Marcus played Dead Space on his. Horror, as one might be able to tell, was a shared interest of ours, and the original basis of our friendship. We had all met in a horror literature course in college and bonded almost immediately. Who could have guessed that real, tangible horror would come to us that night? A horror without name, more potent in its awfulness than any real or fictional thing we'd ever experienced. As Claire and I cleared monstrous, skinless, crawling things from yet another corridor of an underground biomedical research facility, we spoke with Derek and Marcus about the specifics of tomorrow. In exchange for my aforementioned mode of passenger relaxation, I offered Marcus some of my prized oatmeal cookies, which my mom had prepared for me, and only me, she had insisted, prior to the trip. They're home baked, glazed with buttercream icing, and could probably classify as an illicit substance. They are that damn good. He agreed, as I knew he would. He had tried them before, and it would have taken a stronger man than Marcus to deny the offer. Derek asked Claire if she had memorized the route, and Claire confirmed that she had. Although she questioned why she would need to, since he had appointed himself as navigator, we all knew that Derek had done it solely because he hated sitting in the back where the air conditioning was broken. Regardless of positioning, the frontal vents never sent their cooling flow back there either. He quickly shushed us, as if the present moment in the movie was some part he'd never seen before. Claire rolled her eyes and we returned our focus to the game. A few seconds later, when we had reached the area's end, the power of our room went out. Claire and I cursed simultaneously, as did Eric and Marcus a moment later. Marcus, Claire, and I had reason to, having lost our progress in our respective games. Marcus was watching the movie on his laptop and hadn't been interrupted by the outage. Since both rooms had lost power almost at the same time, we immediately, rationally assumed that it was a motel-wide situation. We didn't suspect that only our rooms had had their power shut off. We also agreed not to call the front desk and ask about what had happened. There had been several cars in the motel lot, so we figured the clerk would be getting plenty of calls already no point in us waiting for the line to clear only to be told that he or whoever handled such issues was working on it a knock came to our door about two minutes later in the interim between the outage and the knock claire and i had started to get our stuff ready for the trip tomorrow we agreed that even if the power came back sooner than later we didn't feel like going through the same area in our game all over again that night Our bags were on our bed and we were loading the equipment back into them. Within my bag was a can of pepper spray, another gift from my mother for the trip. I glanced at the can as I loaded my controllers into a pouch but thought nothing of it and zipped up the bag with the can buried beneath cables and plastic. When the knock came, I was sure that it was the clerk stopping by to inform us of what had happened. Claire must have thought similarly because she hopped off the bed, flicking her phone's light off as she did so. She went to the door, unlocked it, and threw it open. Before she could make a sound, she was snatched up into the air by some long appendage that had descended from the roof of the building. My mind hadn't quite processed exactly what had happened due to the darkness of the room and suddenness of her aerial abduction. So when the appendage came back down, presumably to pull me into the night as well. I remained on the bed, staring at the overgrown limb, outlined in white by the moon's pale glow. It wasn't until the fingers, all three of them, angled inward, past the threshold of the door that I thought to get up and close it. I fell off the bed in my haste, but managed to get up and close the door before the limb could come probing the room. I pressed myself against the door, thinking that the massive arm would try to force its way in given its size and the accompanying strength I guessed that it would have possessed. But it didn't bang on the door, nor try to rip it from the hinges. To my surprise, it knocked politely on the wood, even though it could have easily smashed the thing to pieces. Those knocks, that common seven-note rhythm I'm sure we all know, brought me nothing but dread. Its use of that friendly greeting somehow made it seem even more sinister than before. I wanted to call out Claire's name, but part of me, with some morbid sureness, speculated that Claire was already dead. That as the thing above knocked on the door, with one elongated arm, it tossed her bones aside with another. The other part of me was just too damn scared to make any noise at all even though the thing above presumably knew that there was someone else in the room. Why else would it have knocked? In my completely justifiable absent-mindedness due to the horror of the moment, I had forgotten about the still ongoing call with Derek and Marcus. Claire's phone had been in her hand, and the call had been placed with it. As I did my best to silence any noises produced by my internal organs, I heard Derek's voice from above, talking through Claire's phone. Hey, uh, did you guys drop the phone or something? I would have screamed out and would have assuredly been heard through the walls if not the phone, but before I could open my mouth, someone else opened theirs. Oh, yeah, sorry, can you hear me now? It was Claire's voice, heard from up on the roof, speaking as clearly and as calmly as ever. Claire, who had just been snatched up by some nightmare-sent hand before she even had a chance to scream. A barely audible sound and the sudden absence of Derek's voice, which had been in mid-response to her question, indicated to me that the call had been taken off speaker. Claire's voice continued to be heard, and none of her responses even hinted that she had been seized by some night-lurking thing. Perhaps a bit too late. I realized that I wasn't hearing Claire at all. It was the creature that had been speaking, perfectly mimicking Claire's voice. My fear evolved into heart-quickening terror at this realization. I felt dizzy having come to that dark conclusion and still the horror of that night hadn't yet peaked. From up above, I heard Claire's voice ask if she and I could come over to their room A moment later it said, ''Great, we'll be right over.'' The call was audibly ended after that. I heard movement from up above, a sort of shuffling and a subsequent groaning from the structure as if it had been relieved of a great burden. The sounds of movement, issuing from something massive, continued along the roof until they crossed over towards the roofing of the other room. They suddenly quieted thereon the creature not wanting the boys to suspect its true nature. It hadn't cared if I heard, it knew that I already knew. It took a moment for my paralyzing fear to subside before I ran to the wall. I had considered and dismissed the idea of calling them with my phone in the few steps it had taken. They might not have answered soon enough. I pounded on the wall, shouting through the plaster for them to not answer the door. But coinciding with my beatings on the wall, I heard something calmly knock on their door. Marcus mumbled something, which seemed to have been directed at me, but neither properly responded. The walls seemed capable of blocking more sound than I had originally guessed. I stopped shouting, only so I could hear what was going on. It felt like my body had been drained of all its vitality when I heard the door open. There were no other sounds for a moment, and then I heard Marcus's voice, still close to the wall, call out to Derek, who had presumably opened the door. I then heard the stresses of their bed springs being relieved, and the footfalls of Marcus as he approached the door. I cried out for him not to go. He didn't respond, and a few moments later, I heard their door softly close. I listened with my ear pressed so closely against the wall that it hurt. For a while, I heard soft sounds throughout the room, things being picked up and set down, sometimes in different locations, noises that seemed to suggest the room's occupant was examining things, as if the environment was new to them. With my ear pressed so closely, the sudden knock on the wall, though gentle, sounded like a hammer strike. I jerked away from the wall and unintentionally screamed, confirming, if it had had any doubt, my presence within the room. Panic and terror drove me away from the wall and to the nightstand between the beds where I snatched up the car keys thankfully still in our room, and then I headed for the door. I threw it open, wincing in instinctive anticipation of some far-reaching three-fingered hand coming down to seize me, but the view ahead showed only the moonlit parking lot. I stepped out, looking quickly to each side. To my left, the wing of the building along which the majority of the motel rooms lay. To my right, the guy's room and three others beyond theirs, with the reception area its separate subsection of the wing. The door to the hotel room was open. In a moment of self-acknowledged cowardice, I immediately decided that all my friends were dead and that they'd at least want me to survive. Having come to this conclusion with pathetic quickness, I sprinted to the car without a moment's hesitation. I heard a noise behind me, but judged that it had come from within their room. Too far a distance, even for the searching arm. When the headlights illuminated the front of the building immediately before me, I saw something that has given me the darkest, most vivid nightmares ever since. The hand and the freakishly elongated arm to which it was attached was still within the room of Marcus and Derek, probing the space for who knows what. In the white light of the headlights, it was a sickly dark green like the wet skin of some hellish crocodile. In the earlier moments of mind-consuming fright, where mere survival took cognitive precedence, I hadn't thought to really envision the rest of the entity. Sat crouched atop the building, although I don't know how the obviously and minimally maintained structure supported it. It was enormous, a gargantuan, gargoyle-like fiend. It had one massive arm the hand of which had plunged into the room immediately below it. Other arms at seemingly random placements along the opposite side of its body, even up to its hideously elongated neck, waved through the air, their hands opening and closing, grasping at nothing. They all did so in unison, as if mimicking the motions of the primary hand that investigated the room beneath. Its head was obscured amidst the gloom that had gone untouched by the headlights and the moon. I saw only a vague, possibly horn shape, proportionately large, angled downward at the building. From what I could see in the darkness, it had two forelegs and four hind legs, all similar to that great arm in size. Even though every nerve in my body screamed not to, I drove uncomfortably close to the building. It was only for a moment. I wasn't willing to see whether or not that colossal, snatching fiend could pick up a car with its crane-sized arm. The creature remained totally preoccupied with the room. When I sped past, it withdrew the arm. And for a moment, I thought it would actually attempt to snatch or strike the vehicle. But instead, the hand entered the room Claire and I had occupied. I saw only a glimpse of Marcus and Derek's room but it was enough to leaden my foot and send me speeding hazardously across the parking lot, barely dodging the other cars as I fled. Within the room, on the floor near each other, were two crumpled forms the size of a basketball. Despite the speed at which I had passed the room and the inconsistent illumination therein, I recognized the colors of the clothing Marcus and Derek had worn. Those two hyper-compressed objects, almost perfectly spherical objects, had once been my friends. I cleared the parking lot and turned onto the highway, but some morbid pull turned my attention to the rear-view mirror. Even as I sped away, putting miles between myself and the motel, I could never seem to remove from the mirror the image of that thing perched atop the building, juggling their crushed bodies. I won't go back there, even if the police demand that I show them the exact area myself. I'm sorry, friends. But I won't end up like that.
0: The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list.
1: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot
3: I hope you enjoy Tale of the Roof Reacher, as written by Bryce Simmons and voiced by Steve Gray. Up next, we've got a third and final dose of darkness for you, as written by Jay King and performed by Mick Dark. In it... A group of wintertime campers enjoying nature stumble upon something sinister accompanying them on their trip. But, unlike the group in our prior story, this band of buddies is out of earshot and may just be out of luck. Now, without further ado, I present to you... The
7: Incident Dear sir, I won't pretend to feel anything other than a deep dread at the receipt of your letter. How you came by my name and of my involvement in the mentioned incident causes me a great deal of consternation, considering the effort I've made over the years to hide my presence at the event. As you correctly stated, I was indeed in Visay when the hikers passed through. After some little trouble with local government in my hometown... I was spending time there on the down-low, as I understand the expression is. I had not met the group before, but we had a chance to meet during the purchasing of food, and I found them friendly and forthcoming. And I'll admit that their little expedition seemed an enjoyable one to me, though I had not their experience in climbing and mountaineering. My hesitation on whether to join them or not originally led me to start out alone on my own journey on a somewhat parallel route, though with a different destination. But I found myself oddly drawn to that intriguingly determined little group, and so eventually changed my mind and my path. They had taken the first part of their journey quite easily, and I was able to catch up with them in the Highland area around, I believe, the 31st, after Uden had already departed the expedition due to injury. The lone female member of the group, Lyudmila, seemed pleased to have more female company in the group as a whole welcomed me as a friend. It warmed my heart. After all, I could have no idea what was to come. The first sign that the journey would not be what we hoped was the worsening weather conditions, sharp snowstorms that destroyed our visibility, and as a less experienced hiker. I found this quite disconcerting, but the rest of the group were made of sturdier stuff and were not so phased. Even when it transpired that we had become a little lost and had deviated from our path, finding ourselves towards the top of the Kolat. They merely decided that we should set up camp, Igor stating that it would be a good practice of slope camping and not wanting to lose the height we had conquered. Oh that we had been more cautious, been less eager. Despite the presence of women in the group, we shared one tent between the 10 of us and practicality being far more important in the circumstances than propriety. It was actually Lyudmila that woke up first that night, her movement waking me. Can, can you hear that, Veta? She asked and the concern in her voice made me hesitate. In the silence of the night for several moments, all I could hear was the gentle breathing of our companions. And then there was a crunch of snow outside and a sharp noise like the heavy breath of a large animal, a bear perhaps, though we were aware of nothing like it in the area. Lyudmila and myself, we froze. Our eyes locked together, and then she reached over and gripped Igor's arm. His eyes opened blearily and focused on us, and I saw his expression grow puzzled as he watched me press a finger to my lips. Huh? What? He sat up carefully, and he stared at us, a question on his face. In answer, I just pointed to where the sound seemed to be coming from. It was closer now and whatever it was seemed to have its face pressed to the side of the tent, as I could hear it sniffing along the bottom of the material. I was aware of the other members of the group awakening, slowly sitting up, their bodies still and silent as they heard the thing outside investigating us. I don't know what we all felt at that moment. Some fear, certainly, but perhaps not terror. A large animal does not necessarily mean a predator, after all, and our tent was sturdy in any case. I caught Igor's eye, and his calmness soothed me. The thing outside was moving around towards the front of the tent, towards the opening that we believed to be securely tied, and then the noise. Oh, God, the noise. I can't describe it fully. Something like a scream, but furious. Somehow high-pitched and shrieking, and yet with some lower rumble of bass that seemed to make the ground shake beneath us, there were cries of fear within the group, and we grasped each other. At my side and absolutely terrified, Yuri snatched his knife out of his bag and he slashed it through the side of the tent. The slit he made was easily big enough for him to fit through, and he fled out of it, followed quickly by Georgie. As the thing outside pushed against the front of the tent, the rest of us surged forward towards this escape route, briefly bottlenecking. Whilst behind us, that awful roar grew louder, and then we were free, and fleeing down the slopes towards the nearest shelter we could find, I don't know how long we ran freezing, terrified and pursued by that creature before we saw the woods ahead of us and we barreled in. We scrambled into bushes and up trees, breathless, and trying to make each other out in the darkness as well as to see if that thing had followed. There was silence around us, and I think we all dared to hope that we had escaped But whatever elation could have been in store for us was quickly dashed by the realization of our situation. We were outside, in the freezing cold, most of us without shoes even, and with no way to find our way back to the dark, to our belongings. I'm not sure how long we cowered there before we realized that we were going to have to at least attempt to return back the way we came. Georgie and Yuri were already beginning to succumb to the first signs of hypothermia. I heard Zenaida shushing Yuri, who was shaking violently and hissing about his bare feet. There were hushed discussions of starting a fire, but I think we were scared that it would bring the creature back to so us. So Igor made the decision that the rest of us would stay in the woods while he, Zineda, and Rustum would attempt to return to the tent to fetch clothing and provisions. They left soon after. We never saw them again. After several hours, Nikolai urged us to start at least a small fire if we didn't want to lose Yuri and Georgie, who were huddled at the bottom of a pine deathly pale. Yuri had already tried to remove his clothes once. I'm sure that many of your education is aware of paradoxical undressing, though Liudmila had managed to stop him. Semyon agreed and we collected firewood and attempted a blaze, though without much luck, never really managing more than a sputtering failure. And after Yuri suddenly jerked his leg, knocking the fire out and singeing his trousers in the process. Despite the bitter weather, we gave up. But you have to be practical in these circumstances, you see. So when Yuri and Georgi were seen to not need them anymore, we took their clothing. Their troubles were over. It was Alexander who first stated that he did not believe that Igor and the others would be returning and that if we wanted to survive this, we would need to set out on our own. Those of us that remained, myself, Lyudmila, Nikolai and Semyon, had to agree. We were on our own. We set out carefully and quietly as we could, thinking to follow in the footsteps of Igor and the others and make our way back to the tent. We stayed close together, eyes wide and staring out into the darkness. That we had already lost our way only became apparent when moonlight burst out from behind a cloud and shone down on a gaping ravine that none of us could remember on our flight down from the tent to relative safety. Should we turn back? whispered Alexander to the rest of us but before any of us could answer. Nikolai glanced behind us and let out an awful cry. I don't believe the rest of us looked to see what he had seen. We had a good idea after all, but instead just ran as fast as we could away from it. In the panic, Nikolai, terrified by what he'd seen, stumbled the wrong way, and I saw him disappear over the nearby edge. Liadmulla screamed at that and immediately changed her course to a path that led towards the ravine and down perhaps hoping that we could somehow save him. Semyon, Alexander, and I followed her. There was nowhere to hide up here after all. We ran and slipped our way down to the creek at the bottom, but there was no time to look for Nikolai. The creature had followed us. We could hear its fast footsteps and its grumbling growl. I tried to sneak a look over my shoulder as I ran but could only make out a shadowy shape in the darkness. Our group found itself splitting up, each trying to make different cover. I saw Lyudmila make for a group of boulders, whilst I lunged, for a large shrub growing stubbornly by the freezing water. I didn't see at that time where Alexander went. Once hidden, I turned to see if the creature had seen me, might perhaps even now be bearing down on me, but it was not. Semyon had slipped in the water and he was trying to drag himself away. I could hear his whimpering and cries from where I hid. I could also see the creature for the first time. It was tall and thin. Human-like, I guess, but wrong in too many ways. In the moonlight, I could make out unnaturally long limbs, jutting bones. Its face wasn't too clear, though I thought I could make out dark holes where eyes and mouth might be. It was bearing down on Semyon, who had twisted round to face his attacker. Brave man. The thing leaned down towards him and screamed... The noise was worse than before, again with that strange split of high and low resonance. With wide eyes, I saw Semyon's face contort in pain, and then I looked away, squeezing my eyes shut. I heard a dull crack, like the crunch of bones, and then silence. I peered out. Semyon was slumped back in the water, dead, I had no doubt. The thing was standing where I had seen it last, its back to me. It was unnaturally still, like a statue. I glanced over to the boulders where I had seen Lyudmilla, and I saw her, peeping out as I was, her eyes on the monster. I realized immediately that she intended to run. Her cover was not as good as mine and it was as apparent to her as to me that if the creature turned her way, she would not be hidden. She carefully moved back. Whether the creature had supernatural hearing or some other unknown sense, it turned immediately. Those dark holes of eyes seeking Lyudmila out. She screamed and turned to run, but good God. It moved so fast, those freakish limbs eating up the ground between them, its spidery hands grabbing her arms, pulling her up in the air for a second. It just stared at her face as she writhed in its grip and then gave its banshee wail. This time I didn't look away though sheer terror has purged much of what I saw from my mind. But before I fainted, I remembered seeing her eyes and how they poured down her face. How I survived until morning, I'll never know. Though three fingers and most of my toes were the price I paid to the cold, I was luckier, though, than Alexander, who was found further down the creek, frozen, face down in the water, as it lapped gently against him. Of the creature, there was no sign. I made no attempt to return to the tent, and would likely have perished like my companions had I not eventually stumbled upon a somewhat shocked tribe of Mansi, who saved my life, and to whom I am forever indebted. Until today, I have never shared this story. My status as a fugitive from the law would have made me unwilling to divulge my involvement, even if the story had not been so unbelievable, and the government so eager to cover up what aspects of it they could, though mostly it's because I do not wish to relive it. I've had such nightmares as it is of the creature, of Leidmila's face. And of the details I learned later from the investigations, the families don't need to know what truly occurred. Let them believe it was just an unfortunate accident. I know enough of you, sir, to have no reason to believe in your goodness. But I'm an old woman now who is not likely to see many more summers. If I could prevail on you to keep this account hidden until I am no longer around to confirm nor deny it, then you would be doing me a great kindness. Let the dead rest, sir. Though from what I know of you, I fear my pleas fall on deaf ears. Yours, elizaveta Sokolova.
0: I hope
3: you enjoyed The Incident, as written by Jay King and voiced by Mick Dark. As a reminder, you can hear more of Mick on our official YouTube channel. Just search for him by name, Mick Dark, or watch for his latest releases with new Tales to Terrify released each and every month. Now our weekly descent into the depths has just come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode. And remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener, sweet dreams.
2: Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by, yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at